Well, I need to make um, an initial comment before we uh, open God's Word. And uh, what has come to be known in this last week as Rope Gate. Um, last week, I, uh, I, I, off the cuff, adding to my notes, I, I said, speaking of the high priest, that uh, they used to tie a rope to his leg and he, in, in, as he went into the Holy of Holies, just in case he died, they would have to pull him out. Well, on the way home, uh, on the way back to the evening service, my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter said, Daddy, where's that in the Bible? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? Where's that in the Bible? And I suddenly thought, I actually don't know. And so I went and I searched all my Bible software and discovered it's not in the Bible. In fact, I went online and discovered that it's not even in the Apocrypha. It's, not, it's actually, it's hardly anywhere. And so it's one of these myths. And, uh, but, that, but, but it's one of these myths I've heard quite, quite a bit preached. And so I want to retract that statement and apologize for spreading a myth along with God's word. Actually, I think that's quite serious. So that's why I am retracting that and apologize for that. And so expunge that from your mind. Well, please open your Bibles to chapter 32 of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. And if you uh, are using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 90. Page 90. And before we read God's Word, let's just take a moment to pray. Sovereign Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And uh, I pray that I may speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we pray that you would make us as a congregation, a discerning congregation that would be like the, the noble Bereans that Paul preached to, that they would examine the scriptures to see if it is so. And Lord, we long that we would meet with you, the living God, through your word. So grant us insight into your word, insight into our lives, and the hope and comfort of the gospel, we pray. In Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's read this chapter. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold rings, earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. 
They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self I will make you descendants, your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It's not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold or jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild. And that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You've been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. 
So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot, my, blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is God's word. If you want a text to meditate on today, this one in verse 1, this sentence would be a good one to think about. Come, make us gods who will go before us. What a statement this is. Come, make for us gods who will go before us. It's a scandalous statement, isn't it? I mean, the great love story goes something like this. Two people meet, they fall in love, they get married, and they live happily ever after. And we've been looking at this classic love story written in a bigger canvas in the book of Exodus of God who showers his love on a slave nation in Egypt better than the best uh, adventure romances. God the hero steps into the lives of these suffering enslaved people and rescues them. He defeats the gods of Egypt, the powers of Pharaoh, and they are liberated. He brings them through the Red Sea. He, he defeats their enemies uh, in the Red Sea. He faithfully provides for them in the desert and he brings them to himself. And at Mount Sinai, God proposes to his people. He will be their God and they can be his people if they'll only accept the marriage proposal of the covenant. And we examined in chapters 20 to 24 the crystal clear way that God uh, spells out the covenant, the covenant expectations of this relationship for it to work. And then Moses, uh, they agree to that and Moses conducts the wedding ceremony. He tells the people the entire covenant and, and in effect says, will you take God to be your God? And they say, well, we do. And then after the marriage ceremony comes the joy and privilege of, of living together. And of course, the Bible is very clear about this, that uh, the living together bit only comes after you've made the commitment of marriage and not before. And in chapters 25 to, to 31, we hear all the wonderful plans uh, for God to live with his people. Uh, up in the mountain, God is giving Moses all the details about the tabernacle that we examined last week, God's special tent so they can live right at the center of his people. And against this glorious and joyful picture of this new special relationship, chapter 32 is just one of those sickening moments, isn't it? It just slaps you in the face when you least expect it. Something terrible takes place at the foot of the mountain. These people are idle lovers. It's as if the marriage has taken place and during the honeymoon, the husband comes back to find that his wife has invited another lover into their bed. That's what's going on here. And if you think that the, uh, I'm using rather uh, extended language, look over to chapter 34 and verse 13. 
God is giving commands here to what they must do to the idols and, and the false worship of, of Canaanite gods when they enter the land. And it says this in verse uh, 13. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, he is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. This is strong emotional language. It doesn't get worse than this, does it? Spiritual adultery. And what God's people need to realize about their God is that he is a jealous God. It's, it's, of course, it's not the sort of the sinful jealousy that overtakes us, where we want what we do not have and, uh, and hate the person who has it. Now, the jealousy of zealously wanting to protect a love relationship that already exists is a healthy thing, isn't it? A marriage where the husband does not care who his wife sleeps with is a very sick marriage. A loving husband and a wife have an appropriate desire for their relationship to be exclusive, one to each other. And they're rightly jealous for each other's love, are they not? And the golden calf incident is a moment of spiritual adultery. This is scandalous. Come, make us gods who will go before us, they say. I mean, they clearly heard the Ten Commandments. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And that's exactly what the people ask for. In 32 verse 1, come make us gods. And look at what they say to Aaron in verse 4 after he unveils the idol. Then the people say, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Their intention was that Aaron would make some alternatives to the, to the God who had revealed himself to them. They, they wanted to pass on even the attributes of what this God had done to these false gods. Now, how could they do that? How could they behave in such a way? Well, because they have idolatrous hearts. With Moses out of the way, the true state of their heart is revealed. Um, God had rescued them out of Egypt, as many people have pointed out, but Egypt is still in their hearts. What is going on here is um, the true state of their spiritual heart just comes out when Moses is away. It's described, their activity is described in verse 21 and verse 31 as a great sin. Now, sin is just simply breaking God's revealed commandments. Doing what God has clearly revealed we should not do. And it comes from their hearts. It stems because they're impatient with their hardships. They're in the wilderness. They've been hanging around this mountain for a while now. Moses is gone. It's, it's tough living in the wilderness. And they're impatient. When are we going to get on to this promised land? How long do we have to wait here? And they begin to distrust God. They say, well, this Moses, we, we don't know what has happened to him. I mean, he's headed off into that mountain, that scary mountain. And they don't trust God. They might never come back. And so this terrible, scandalous, sinful 
request. Come, make us gods who will go before us. Now this is a, this is a problem, not just for an ancient people. It's a problem for all of us. We too grow impatient waiting for a, a revealed faith of an invisible God. Uh, we want to have gods like the ones we see around us. The gods that other people worship around us. John Calvin uh, put it this way, that the human heart is an idol-making factory. According to the Bible, everybody knows that there is a God. Only the fool says that there is no God. And it's clear from creation, it's clear from our conscience that he's there, but we all suppress the truth. We don't want to be accountable to the real creator God. We push that truth down and down and out of the way so we can carry on with our life regardless. Uh, we want to find our own identity, our own significance. We, we want to follow our own laws, our own commands. We want to live life the way we want to live it. And we fail to honor God as God. We, honor, we fail to give him thanks. And instead, we act like fools. We start bowing down and worshiping God's creation rather than the creator. You see, this is not just a problem with Israel. This is a problem with all humanity that says, come, uh, make us gods that will go before us. All around us, people are finding their identity, giving of their adoration and of their focus to that which is not God. It is fascinating to me when I, went to, um, when I went to New York and went to Wall Street to see that golden bronze bull on Wall Street. Isn't that amazing? There we are in the heart of capitalism, the heart of finance. And what are we going to do to symbolize it? We're going to put a golden bull outside. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with money, nothing intrinsically wrong with profit or business. But if this uh, becomes the center of what we're about, the focus of what we're about, if it becomes an idol, it is horrific. There's nothing wrong with sex. God has made us sexual beings. But the huge pornography business, the ever-increasing incidence of sexually transmitted disease tells us that many worship at eroticism. There's nothing wrong with having a job. Nothing wrong with doing well academically. But when we sacrifice our children or our marriage to get to the next rung and have no place for the worship of God amongst his people, then it's an idol. And we need to see from verse 1 how foolish our thinking becomes when we give way to idolatry. Make us gods who will go before us. How ludicrous this is. And verse 4, Aaron uh, takes their gold earrings and uh, makes an idol in the shape of a calf. Now what hope, what benefit can we possibly hope to gain from something that we make and shape with our own hands? A golden, lifeless cow. We make it, and then we think it'll have some power, some influence over the cosmos, over our lives. Oh, that's, that's a long time ago, you say. That's, that's nonsense. We don't think that today. Oh, it's interesting that the superstition has grown up in Wall Street, that if you rub that bronze cow, it'll bring you good luck financially. <laughs> oh, how foolish we are. To reject the God 
who has always eternally existed by his own power and made everything with words. He, he spoke and they came to being. Uh, he creates millions of galaxies with trillions upon trillions of stars and sustains it all with his words. And we, and we reject him for man-made symbols like golden cows. How foolish to idolize science to idolize philosophy, to idolize men, to idolize politics, to idolize art or money, to idolize alcohol or fame, to suggest that these somehow can give us hope for the future, hope in the face of death, is just utterly foolish thinking. And here is the tragedy. They were engaging with the true and living God. They actually were in relationship with God. They heard God's voice speak to them. They had God clearly reveal himself to them. Moses was going to come down the mountain with, uh, with stone tablets where they could have explored the handwriting of God. God wrote these commands. They, they didn't have to guess at who this God was. God was revealing himself to them. God was uh, designing an, an amazing tabernacle tent as a picture of his holiness, as a way to understand his character, as a way that they could experience and know the living God traveling with them day by day throughout their lives. They had all of that. A God who had set them free, a God who loved them, who fed them, who protected them, a God who had given them the promised land to enjoy, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image of something that goes moo. How tragic. And do you know what? We are tempted in exactly the same way. As God's people, when hardships come, when we begin to distrust God, we can turn to other idols to give us security, to give us hope, to give our lives meaning. We can turn to careers, we can turn to shopping, we can turn to uh, our family, fame, we can turn to alcohol, we can turn to drugs, we can turn to an affair, all sorts of idols some more gross and obvious than others. Others can just be hidden inside our own hearts. But the way we relate to others shows that we have idols. Here's some questions to reveal our idols. What is it that, that we live for? What are you living for? What is it that gets you through the week? What is it that you think, well, this will get me through this week? What is the thing for which you are willing to sacrifice all other things in your life, if you can have that one thing. And this danger of, of spiritual idolatry is also true for, for leaders. The second commandment that God revealed was this, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. But look at what Aaron does with their request. Yeah, do you notice any argument? Any pleading against this obvious disobedience? Does he say, well, actually, I need to pray about that. Let's bring the elders in. We need to have a talk about this, uh, fellow elders. Uh, he doesn't do any of that. He, he just jumps to it, doesn't he? Give me your gold jewelry. 
And look how active he was in the process. Verse 4. He received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a a graving tool and made a golden calf. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I think Aaron is doing something slightly different to the people. Aaron didn't want to be involved in anything so gross as uh, worshipping different gods. He wanted to worship the Lord, notice. The, the God who had revealed himself to Moses and, and the events of the Exodus. Which God do you worship, Aaron? Well, he would say, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and earth. But he wanted to worship God on his own terms. He wanted to worship a God fashioned by his own hands. By his own imagination. And that's literally what he does, out of gold. This is a colossal failure of spiritual leadership, isn't it? And look at what Moses says when he confronts him in verse 21. I mean, what do these people do to you, Aaron? What could they possibly do to you, to, to, to lead you that you would lead them into such a great sin? Well, what had they done to him? They just crowded around him. That's all they'd done. He was swayed by the crowd. He tried to mix the true worship of God, uh, altars and offerings, with the error of idolatry. I mean, maybe in his way of thinking is, well, they're going for different gods. Maybe if I go halfway, I'll be able to bring the crowds back. I don't know what made him think this. The associate pastor decided it would be okay to change the worship service, just to fit in with the desires of the people, rather than be clear on the teaching of God's word. And even if he hadn't fully realized it, he'd started a false religion. And he tries to pretend that he had no part in it, doesn't he? I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. As a blame shifting goes on, as, as, as he gets asked this question by Moses, you know, I threw in this gold and out came this calf. Ooh, wow, it's a miracle now, you know. Golden calf, he's got a first miracle. It just appeared out of nowhere. But he was the one who shaped the mold with his tool. He's the one who poured the molten gold into it. He was the one who had led the people into great sin. And things got quickly out of hand. See, golden calf religion doesn't have a holy God. It doesn't um, have any constraint by God's word, by God's revelation. Instead of being God-centered, it it just panders to whoever uh, we want to be at the center. And because of our fullness, you see, when... It is a horrific thing when, uh, as human beings, we're allowed to express the full desires of our heart in an unrestrained way. We're not spiritually healthy people. That's why we have police and law courts and prisons, because actually if we give full extent to the desires of our heart, it is a horrific thing. And that's what we see happening um, around this worship service, around the golden calf. They just want to have a religion that satisfies all their appetites. They want unrestrained sensuality. Verse 6, so the next day the people rose early. and They they loved religion like this. They wanted to go at it early. So the next day they rose early. They sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now that word revelry and the word in verse 25 later broke loose. In the original language... Uh, the commentaries tell me, it has a sense of nakedness, of unrestrained sensuality. I mean, this is, 
There's nothing intrinsically wrong with dancing or singing. But this is not a Kaylee that's going on here. This is getting increasingly debauched and sensuous and out of control. And you know, golden calf religion is alive and well. Uh, we can see and read of bishops and ministers and, and assemblies throwing away God's revelation and leading the revelry around the golden calf of a custom-made Christianity. You can see people wearing amazing religious outfits as they get ordained to then go on, follow their own sinful appetites. And while few in evangelical churches might get suckered into worshipping different gods, this sin of Aaron's sin, his idolatry, I think is, is a constant temptation to actually look at our diminishing numbers and think, well, what can we do to get the crowds in? To maybe begin to change the message that will be just a little bit more acceptable, a little less abrasive, a little bit... Um, more supported by the people out there to win the acceptance of others. This last week I, I heard the thought for the day on Radio 4 um, by a Christian minister and he was reflect, reflecting on the value of um, rest and holidays and he said, and of course this is, this is taught in the, in the Bible which says the most famous text in the Old Testament, be still and know, full stop. Uh, it just encourages if we stop we can get to know ourselves. Well this is... This is golden calf religion, isn't it? Where man is at the center. Be still and know that I am God. Is what it says. And people might not make little golden calves and put them around their necks or whatever, but they'll come out with statements like this. Well, I don't want to think of God like that. I don't want to think of God as a judge or who punishes sin. I would rather think of God as someone who just wants to give us all a sort of a, a big affirming hug. Yes, that's the God that I believe in. I heard uh, an interview with Oprah Winfrey uh, many years ago where she said that the, the time that she left church was when the minister stood up, her Baptist pastor said that God was a jealous God. And she thought to herself, well, I, I don't want a God who's a jealous God. And before she heard any explanation, she left. Because she would rather have a God of her own imagination. And my friends, we need to heed the warning of Exodus 32. We as Christians need to heed this warning today. Uh, the, the, the Apostle John, at the end of his first letter, he finishes off with this ex ex extraordinary ending at the end of his letter. He just says this, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Or the reading from the New Testament today, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writing to Christians says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is serious. This is a danger. This is a threat to us as Christians. Now my next two points are much quicker. But we need to see the idol consequences there are two clear consequences here aren't there um, the first is alienation look at that in verse 7 then the Lord said to Moses go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt 
We should note here that God, even as he's speaking to Moses up on the mountaintop, is fully aware of what's happening in this alternative worship service at the bottom of the mountain. God sees all that his people do. God hears all that his people say. God is present today. God sees what we say out loud. He hears what we say in our hearts. He knows all about us. God has seen it all. But you notice that chilling word, your people? See the alienation? Your people, Moses. And see the the actions of Moses in verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. Now, is is Moses uh, doing something wrong here? Taking God's revelation and break it into bits? No, he's acting as a prophet. He, He is showing them what they've done. You know, they've broken the first two commandments. And actually, that means that they've destroyed the whole covenant. You break one commandment, you break all of the commandments. You break the whole covenant. And he smashes it into bits prophetically to show how the the relationship is over. The first consequence, alienation. The second, wrath. Look at verse 9. I have seen these people... The Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Now this is how serious this sin of idolatry is. It brings the wrath of God. It is such an affront to God that he tells Moses just to get out of the way so he can wipe them out. This is how serious sin is. Is there any hope? For idolaters. And here is the wonderful truth that is mixed in with this horrific incident. I I need hope, don't I? I haven't always worshipped God as I ought. Um, My actions and words have shown that I'm guilty of worshipping other things. I've been guilty of disobeying God's commands breaking his laws and the question is when i disobey god even you know is he going to walk away is there any hope and there's three points of hope i want to suggest in this passage firstly there's hope in a mediator look at verse 10 Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. What an extraordinary man Moses is. What an extraordinary moment. An extraordinary mediator. Here is someone who valued God's honor more than his own. Uh, who, who valued the reputation and the glory of God more than the potential of increasing his own glory. I mean, God made them an incredible offer. Moses, let's scrub out Israel 1.0. You can be Israel 2.0. 
We'll just start it. You can be the new Abraham, Moses. I'll start with you. But God's glory mattered more to him than his own glory. And so Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And you can see that in his prayer in verses 11 to 13. This is one of the great prayers of the Bible. And, and we, need, we, we should pay attention. If we are prone to idolatry, we need to pay attention to a prayer like this. Notice Moses does not sort of deny the great sin of the people. He doesn't try to mitigate it. Oh, it's very hot down in the desert, God. I mean, they maybe had sunstroke or something like that. He doesn't try to do anything like that. He doesn't try and talk up some of the positives of the people. This is a prayer of intercession for the people that is made solely on the character of God. And the second point of hope here is that we have the hope of trusting a jealous God. See, Moses requests for God to change his, his uh, threat of judgment, and he does so because of God's unchanging character. Moses knows that God is a jealous God, jealous for his own name and as well as for his people. So look at verse 11. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? See what Moses says? He, 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 he puts them back in the hands of God. Remember your love, O God. These are your people. Uh, these are the ones that you purposed to bring out of Egypt. Remember the investment you've already made. You, you brought them out with great power and a mighty hand. You've done so much already, Lord. Why stop now? And remember your reputation, O God, he says. Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? I mean, God had publicly uh, displayed his power and his glory that his name would be known all the earth as he, as he redeemed them out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, but if you wipe them out in the desert, what are they going to say in Egypt? What's, what's that going to do for your reputation? On the basis of that, we get this appeal in verse 12. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. What's he appealing for here? It's for mercy. For God's compassionate mercy. And his final appeal is also rooted in God's character as, as a God who keeps his promises. Verse 13, remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Remember your faithfulness, O God, Moses says. You made these promises, Abraham. You're a God who keeps your promises. And, and this is our reason for hope as idolaters, that God did not start this salvation plan because of our worthiness. And he will not be stopped because of our unworthiness. See, our salvation rests in the character of a faithful, promise-keeping God. 
A God who's made awesome promises to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our comfort is. And verse 14 uh, sees that this, this, this prayer is highly effective. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. And the third place of hope for idolaters is in substitutionary atonement. Yes, it's here in this chapter. Moses goes back down the mountain to deal with this chaos. The idol is totally destroyed. Notice that. Sometimes you think, okay, I'll deal with my idol. I'll just put it in the cupboard, Lord. Out of sight. Oh, it's so easy to go back to that cupboard and pull it back out again. This is what Moses does. He, he, dis, he, he, he cremates it. He burns it with fire. He grounds it up. He, he puts it in water. He makes them drink it. He totally destroys it. This idol can no longer exist amongst them. He deals with a camp in chaos. This severe discipline takes place to restore peace and order where 3,000 are dead by the end. And we read that and it looks horrific. But the truth is they all deserve to die. We should be reading this going, well, how come the rest of them got off? But still the issue at the end of, of 32 is, is how will a holy God respond to this offensive spiritual adultery? How will he respond to this great sin? What can be done? Well, look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And so Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. What a magnificent mediator and leader Moses was. What a heart for God he had. What a heart for the people. But you know, the best Moses could say was, Perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement. For your sin. It was an offer that was rejected by God. Why is that? Well, because Moses was totally inadequate as a substitute. He was a sinner himself. Prone to anger, if you recall. Even killed a man when he got angry. No, Moses could not stand as a substitute. He couldn't make atonement. The principle was right though. This is the only hope for a sinful people if there can be someone who can stand in our place. Someone who can pay the penalty. Someone who can pay the price for our sin. Someone who can bring atonement. And that's where our hope is as Christians, isn't it? It's in a better mediator. In the sinless Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, fully sufficient to cover all our sin. He did come to substitute himself, his sinless life, in the place of sinners. Listen to what uh, Peter says in his first letter. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you at one with God. This is a sober chapter for the people of God, isn't it? How prone we are to wander. 
how easily and quickly we forget the words of God. How prone we are to mistrust his goodness. And in the hard times, look for other gods. My friends, are you here today and you have another God in your heart? Is there another person, another thing? Is there something that you're leaning on in the place of God? Or hear God's word, dear children, little children, flee from idolatry. We need to run to Christ. You see, all the way through this chapter, even as God threatens to destroy the people, he says to Moses, now if you get out of the way, Moses, I will kill them. Is God really planning to kill them? No. He's inviting Moses to act as a mediator. He knows what he wants to do. God has done all that he can possibly do to deal with our sin, to deal with the offense of our idolatry. He's made full and perfect salvation through his son. He desires to come and be a compassionate, merciful God. What a thing to have this God, the living God, as our God. Come to him. Come to Christ. He's done it all for you. Come to him. I I think we need to pray in response to God's word. And I want to put a prayer that's um, uh, an old Anglican prayer. Those who are descended from the covenanters need not fear. We're not trying to impose the rule of England upon Scotland. But we are going to try and use this useful prayer in response to God's word. Have a look at this prayer and see if you want to pray it. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge and confess the grievous sins and wickedness which we have so often committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your anger and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are deeply sorry for these our wrongdoings. The memory of them weighs us down. The burden of them is too great for us to bear. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past. And grant that from this time onward we may always serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if you'd like to make that prayer as a response to God, let's pray this out loud together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge and confess the grievous sins and wickedness which we have so often committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your anger and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are deeply sorry for these our wrongdoings. The memory of them weighs us down. The burden of them is too great for us to bear. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that from this time onwards 
we may always serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you want to uh, speak to an elder,